Hello and welcome back to the What The Fork podcast in association with Fight With Goalkeeping. Today's guest was a striker who scored over 140 goals, playing for the likes of Hull City and Peterborough United, and can now frequently be found on Sky Sports, offering his insight into the football world. Welcome to the show, Aaron McLean. How are you? Are you all right? I'm good, thank you. How are you, sir? Getting by. We are just having an off-air discussion about um, how to pronounce your name. Is it McLean? McLean? McLean, right? McLean. Yeah, it's McLean, yeah. It's good. McLean. Have to get that right. Um, of all the names I've had on the show, that's the only one that's caused me bother. Can you believe that? <laughs> yeah, a lot of people call me McLean or McLean, but yeah, it's, it's definitely McLean. McLean sounds pretty cool, though. McLean's pretty cool. It's like... It's because you're not used to hearing it. When this <laughs> is not so cool. Yeah, I suppose it's not that great from your end, mate. But um, before we delve sort of deep into your playing career, you've just recently left Peterborough. Um, your departure, I think, was one of two at the clubs. I think they'd made redundancies in the light of the League One campaign ending and all the financial implications that come with it. I can think of a lot of clubs, including Sunderland, um, that could be angry at the way the League One ended. But I think no one um, aside of Peterborough could be top that list for teams that could be angry for the way that it ended. But for you individually, I suppose it had more relevance. So what did you make of the decision to end the season in, in the way that it did? Um, obviously, disappointed and, and frustrated with, first of all, the way the season season was ended because we found ourselves in a great position. You know, we were in a great run of form. Um, and was really confident that we would go on and, and hopefully secure one of those top two positions if, and worst case, we'd, we'd be in the playoffs and have the opportunity to, to kind of battle it out there. So, you know, we were in the playoffs, we were in good form and, and kind of looking forward to the, to the running. And then so for the season to be cut short, for us to be then pushed out of the, the playoff positions uh, and miss out on that opportunity was... Yeah, you know, it was it was disappointing, it was frustrating. And most of all, the, obviously it was going to take a while because the most important thing was making sure that everyone was safe and, and dealing with the COVID situation. That was, you know, that was never up for debate. But for me, giving the vote to the clubs, the clubs are always going to vote in favour for their club. Whatever, whatever scenario suits their club best, they're going to vote for it. Um, and, you know, so by doing that, I feel that it was only ever going to be one outcome. You know, the, the outcome that the EFL had, had come up with, the scenario, that outcome was always going to play out because clubs were going to look after themselves and, you know, not even to do it in a malicious way towards us, towards Sunderland, towards the teams that miss out, but they have to look after their own, their own house and no one's going to risk not getting a promotion or not staying in the league because they feel bad for someone else. It's never going to happen. It doesn't happen in life. So, yeah. you know, it was almost like that was kind of, everyone was kind of steered down a, a certain road and, you know, the outcome was was what it was. Suppose it was, um, someone said something the other day, the team that finished 13th in the championship are potentially getting relegated and the team that finished 8th in League One are going to the championship. Has there ever been a more crazy scenario? And I know COVID's a crazy situation, but I mean, what would have, in your ideal world, what would have been your alternative to end the season? If it was up to you and you solely, what would you have done? Well, seeing how the Premier League and the Championship have been able to, to continue, that would have been the ideal situation for me. 
Yeah. You know, the same way they were able to play the playoffs. You know, that those teams were able to play, um, but some of them voted not to play on. It, for me, I understand the expense, um, but I feel like if a package was put together with help from the Premier League, with help from the PFA, I feel like we would have been able to come to that that conclusion where we're able to continue the season and it finishes in the proper manner. Um, the fact that, like I say, because the vote system was put in place for people to almost say, right, you know what, we can just cut it here. We're not going to go up. We're not going to go down. We're, we're kind of just stuck where we are and we'll take that. That kind of, that option then went out the window. Um, to my knowledge, there was never a package put together um, yeah. from the Premier League and the PFA to say, look, if this is what you want to do and you want to go down this road, here's a package to help you along the way. That that was never that was never um, put to to anyone. So, you know, it, in the end, I suppose a lot of clubs wouldn't have been able to survive without the help, and because the help wasn't forthcoming, you know, I guess the the decision was what it was and. A lot of people will say it was for the best, but for the ones that miss out, and especially for us, having been in those positions, having been in the form that we were in, um, you know, it's it's a it's a tough one to take. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, looking at um, as a Sunderland fan, I, I I I don't think we deserved it necessarily, but I think for me, the one team that could be aggrieved would have been Peterborough because I think with the firepower you had up front, which I'm sure you worked with all season, with obviously Ivan Tony and whatnot. I know Marcus went to, to Hull, unfortunately not to Sunderland in, um, in January, but, um, you know, I think for me, Peterborough were one of the teams that I think could have sneaked in the top two, let alone the playoffs. So if I'm aggrieved as a Sunderland fan, I can imagine being incredibly aggrieved as, as Peterborough. And unfortunately, that meant there was, you know, changes made at Peterborough. But thankfully for us, as I sort of spoke to, to Tom White and also yourself as well, leaving Peterborough has meant that you've got to try your hand at a little bit of punditry and you seem to be doing pretty damn well if you don't if I don't mind if you don't mind me saying sorry um but how did you find you went in the Sky Sports Studios because you kind of went from football straight into the Sky Sports Studios and you, you're doing pretty well mate so who are you being paying um <laughs> you know what it's it's um it's been a funny one obviously the season got curtailed and the the next day I was on I was on Sky Sports I just did an interview kind of talking about um the situation and how it's affected me, you know. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, a, a week or so later, a, f a few people from Sky Sports kind of got in contact with us and and said, look, would you mind, you know, would you be interested in, in coming down and watching some games for us and, and kind of seeing how it goes from there? And the punditry side was always something that I'd looked at and kind of thought I'd love to, I'd love to do it. You know, I, I enjoy talking, I enjoy analysing games and, and that side of it. So... It was something I'd, I'd love to have done, but it's almost like an invite-only kind of circle. You know, you can't just finish playing football and say, right, I'm going to go and be a pundit now. And then you just walk onto a set at Sky Sports. So, yeah. you know, the opportunity hadn't come up until now. Um, and then, yeah, going there was, it was brilliant. You know, my, my first game was the FA Cup quarterfinal with Norwich and Man United. Um and I'll be honest, the first leading up to it, I wasn't nervous because I'd, I'd done my research. I was prepped. I knew exactly what what I needed to know. Um, 
But once I got to the studio, I got to the studio quite early because I didn't want to be late. I didn't want there to be any any holdups. And I'm about an hour away from the, from the studio. So I got there and I got there at three o'clock. My game wasn't until 5.30. So watching Matt Murray, Paul Merson, Jeff, watching those guys do the three o'clock games and just seeing how comfortable they were and how easy it was, that was the thing that made me nervous. Um, because I thought, right, you have just smashed it and I've now got to follow you and I'm live to, to the whole country. So I'd say that that couple of hours was was the only nervous parts, but Pete Gravesy was there um, and he was brilliant. You know, he we had a chat before before we went on when we went to get our makeup done and he just put me totally at ease. Um, just I knew that I was in good hands. I knew that I was going to be looked after. And once once the show started, it was it was easy. And then, you know, like I say, because I've done my prep before, I knew, you know, I knew my my information about Man United, about Norwich, yeah, about their about their head to heads and and their form and stuff. So that side of it was was fine. And you know, I had the guys along with Tom White as well. You know, Tom, brilliant, helped brilliant. me along. And because because I had those guys beside me, the rest of it was was easy. And I feel like it's one of those things. The more you do it the better you get the more comfortable yeah. you get and, and you get to know the people so it's you're almost sat there talking with mates as opposed to talking with people you don't know the funny thing with sky sports and i've always wondered this and i've asked tom um pete graves and keith downey have you ever seen them in the same room together because i think they're the same person <laughs> i'm pretty confident that they're the same person I, and they're both <laughs> One's got a Scottish accent, but it's easy to do a Scottish accent. So yeah, I was going to say their accents are different. So, but I, I hear it. Yeah, if one of them can do it, if he can do an accent, then yeah, you never know. It could I be think like so. a Superman kind of thing. There's something funny going on in Sky Sports Studios because I absolutely refuse to believe that Tom White, the beautiful man that he is, is only 36 years of age. That's ridiculous. <laughs> That makeup must be really, really good. But then I met him in person last season at Lincoln, and I'm thinking. Is he still wearing makeup, or is he behind a screen? Or, yeah, I'm, uh, he's a good, he's a good-looking fellow. Thankfully, a very nice one as you well. Know what? But... He's got the best blazers on Sky Sports. Yeah, Mark oh, Jacobs or something. Is it Mark Jacobs? Or I, can't, sure. I don't wear suits. He did that. He, the thing is, he actually told me. I'll have to message him and find out because he he did tell me who who he gets it from. Um, but yeah, I know. The thing is, I noticed that before I knew Tom, yeah. I noticed. You know what? Because I'm blazers and, and waistcoats and stuff. I love I love my clothing. So I'd noticed his blazers long before I'd actually met him. So when I met him, I was like, okay, I see what you're doing there. So yeah, he's he's definitely set the bar on, on Sky, but I'm gonna have to um I've got a nice um a nice plain white Primark t shirt on today. if you want any tips, <laughs> pretty good. Bit of ASOS if you want, mate. You gotta go for comfort sometimes, definitely. Pull it off, kind of. Um, on your sort of current career, um, or current career, previous career, sorry, um, you started at Leighton Orient. I know you came through the academy there as well. So, you know, what are the main differences between the academy of like a Division Three side to say perhaps a pampered Premier League academy from your experience? Um, well, to start with, the facilities you have are totally different. 
you know, um, at Leighton Orient, we had, obviously the youth team, the youth setup was, was very good. And they had a really good record for producing players and getting players through the, through the youth system into the first team. Um, but financially, you know, what you're able to, to get and the things that you're able to do are totally, totally different to, to Premier League level. You know, I did a little bit of work at um, Chelsea quite recently um, and seeing how those players are looked after, anything they want is on hand, you know, even down to, to food or, you know, they're getting sent untold amount of boots and trainers and, you know, their, their training kit is the best, you know, when Nike send out their, their training stuff, it's the best of the best when it comes yeah. to your, your big clubs. Um, at Leighton on, you don't have that. You have, you get your two sets of kit at the beginning of the season and you make it last till the end of the season. So your boots, you know, you get the PFA will send you your two pairs of boots at the beginning of the season. And if you want more boots throughout the season, then you better make sure that when you get paid, you're, you know, I think it's like £60 a week or something, then um, you go and buy a pair of boots at the end of it because we don't have sponsorship deals and, you know, the companies where we was in Division 3 then. So Nike and Adidas and those types, they didn't want to be sending us free boots. You know, we're not really going to gonna promote it as much as, as much as the big teams are. So, yeah, you know, it's... it's uh, for me, it made me very appreciative yeah you know i i appreciated <clears throat> first of all i appreciate the opportunity because i'd spent from about 10 about 10 to 16 i was at chelsea and it was a it was unbelievable going through school and being at chelsea being able to leave school early and in your tracksuit and go training or go to a game and stuff like that going up to harling and and seeing the training ground and stuff so I was kind of in that little bubble that a lot of kids that are at these big clubs are at. Yeah. When I got released from Chelsea and then it was like, right, what do I do now? I didn't know an awful lot about Leighton Orient at that time. I'd, I kind of just knew about Premier, you know, I was just a little, a young kid who only really knows about Premier League football. So first of all, going to Leighton Orient in itself was like a huge drop down for me. And, actually handling it was was tough because I was going kind of going into the unknown yeah but once I got there I realized just how good the standard was you know it wasn't a million miles away and there was a clear pathway for me to be able to go from playing in the youth team to then playing in the first team or be from the youth team getting being involved with the reserves and being involved with the first team you know yeah. there was a there was a clear pathway and it was a pathway that I was able to, to, to achieve quite early on in, in my career in, in that respect. And talking about early in your career, and I mean, I hate, I hate to bring this up and it still baffles me that I have to, but I think it's probably quite important that we address it in the, in the current climate. I read an article back in, I think it was 2018 it was, so obviously things have, have changed, moved on or stayed the same depending on how we look at it. Um, that stated, I think there's over 40 professional footballers that in and around the capital had re had revealed they'd received racist abuse um, from, you know, what, 
however many years it had been and different examples and incidents I think you came out and personally said you were one of the people that you'd had it since like the beginning of your career um how bad did it get how do you handle it and you know what what do you think can be done better to improve that situation in the, in the 2020 basically um yeah I had it uh re- really early I had the first time experiencing it in football was we played an away game. I won't say the clubs just because I don't want... Understandable. You know, I don't it's want one person, not a club, isn't it? I understand. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but it was an away game. I was playing for Leighton Orient at the time. And I was I must have been 17 years old. Um, and coming in, we'd just done the warm-up. Coming in from the warm-up, and as you go into the tunnel, there was a young kid. It, it can't have been no more than 10, 12 and he's going, oh, 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 you monkey, you monkey. Like, and his dad, and I looked at him and I looked at his dad was just standing there laughing next to him. And that was my first experience of it. You know, I'd, I'd only just got into the first team at Leighton Orient. Um, I was going and playing in this game, which I was already nervous about. You know, it was a big club and I was already nervous about playing in this game. So to have that coming in from the warm-up, you know, I just, I think I might have told one of my friends, you know, I think, I'm not even 100% sure, but I know I didn't tell a lot of people. Um, and I kind of just got on with it and just shrugged it off. And listen, growing up, I'd experienced racism. I'd lived in an area where certain certain parts of of where I live, you don't go on your own because there's groups of racist people. So you know, that side of it, it wasn't like it was new to me. You know, I, mm-hmm. I'd just never seen it actually so blatant to my face when I'm on a football pitch before. Um, and I've had other, I've had a few other experiences. I haven't had loads. I haven't personally had loads of ex- like experiences with racism within the parameters of, of football. But, you know, I've had, I've had one or two and as of what can be done about it in 2020, the punishment has to be so harsh. Like it has to be a no tolerance policy. If you're found racially abusing anyone or, you know, those kinds of, at the end of the day where the thing that stops us is right, what's gonna happen if I do this, you know? Yeah. At the moment, people are being able to do it and getting away with it. You're never going to be able to stop someone thinking racism, racist thoughts, that you can't control what people think. But their actions are what needs to be, that's what needs to be punished. If you have racist thoughts, keep it to yourself. If you want to act on that, then the punishment is going to be way worse than you can ever imagine. And from that, that is that that's going to be a deterrent. But Absolutely. at the moment, it, it's not a deterrent. There is, there isn't. They say they get banned from games and stuff. Listen, I can. I'm pretty sure that if someone gets banned from a game, they can still find a way to get back into the ground. Because I don't know how do you police that. It's you really can put difficult. A up, you know what I mean? It's so. Like I say, the the punishment has to be one of a, a no tolerance. And it has to really show the intent that you want to stamp it out. 
in order for, for any kind of change to be made in that respect. Talking about sort of moving stuff forward as well, what I've what I've really enjoyed listening to is um is John Barnes when he discusses um racism. And I love how he brings to the fore um like subco- um subconscious uh, bias. Like for example, I think he was speaking the other day about how primarily black players are associated with powerful, strong, pacey. It's very rarely about intelligence on the pitch and things like that. And it's a bias that people don't realize is basically steeped in, in racism. Do you think like people like John Barnes, who have such a huge platform and are such a well-remembered and loved former player, speaking about things that people maybe don't think about is going to help move that forward as well? Or is that a stupid question that I've just asked? But I think it no, does, doesn't it? Yeah, I think, I think players from the past and present players, I think everyone needs to, because some people will be able to relate to it more than more than others. You know, yeah. some people will be able to relate to a Marcus Rashford or a Raheem Sterling more than they can a John Barnes, you know. Um, but it's, I think it's important to show that what was before and how, how things were, because when I was a young player, there was racist, when I look back now, there was racist comments made all the time. Yeah. But at the time, I didn't really understand that what you're saying is racist. I didn't understand that. And they've, and the people that were saying it probably didn't understand that what they're saying is racist. Really important as well, but, I think. So, yeah. So I think the education side of it, for not only must, like, not only black people or people of ethnic minority, but for white people as well, because things are being said that, you know, you just take it with a pinch of salt. It's, it's classed as banter, but when you actually break it down, and if those things were said to a different audience, that would be deemed as racist. So I think the education side of it is, is huge. And not only for people of the older generation, but people, the youngsters, the youngsters, black, white, Asian, no matter what background you're from, being educated in, in racism is going to be huge. And that's going to be the catalyst for us being able to move out of the situation we're in now and move into a a world where those kind of things don't happen. Absolutely. Uh, Grey's was brilliant. You know, yeah, like you say, Grey's for me was the first, the first club where I really realistically thought, you know what, I'm going to be able to kick on from here and go and make a career. Um, At Aldershot, I'd had a little bit, you know, I got into the England C team and and played for them for a bit and I'd managed to get to the playoff final with Aldershot. And we had a really good team, you know, we had some really good players with with a good squad, but the Greys team was, it was just littered with, with league players. You know, league players that weren't playing in the league. That's the only way I can really describe it. Um, the, the level of competition as soon as I walked through the door. And bearing in mind, I'd come from Aldershot who had just missed out on, on getting promoted to the league. And Greys had just literally got promoted into the conference. So I was almost coming from a bigger club. And 
the first day that I, I turned up at training, I couldn't believe how good the standard was. You know, I looked and I thought, how am I even going to get in this team? Like, I thought I'd be coming here, walking straight in, and I'd be the main man. And it was so far from, from the case. Um, and I had, to work, I had to work hard to get into the team. You know, the, there, was, there was some real, real talent there. And it's no surprise that so many players from that team went on and, and had league careers, you know, because throughout the, throughout the team, there was, there was real, real quality. And the manager was brilliant. Mark Stimson, for me, was one of the best managers I had the privilege of working with because he just, he was, he was a manager that you, want, you just wanted to play for and you'd yeah. run through brick walls for. He, he made you feel like you were the best player and the best team and you just wanted to, you wanted to work hard for him. You wanted to win for him um, as much as you wanted to win for yourself. And tactically, he was, he was brilliant as well. So for me, yeah, Gray's was a, a huge, a huge period in my life um, and gave me, the, gave me all the tools that I needed to be able to go on and, and make a league career. And it was obviously at that point, I think the three seasons you had at Gray's where you went onwards towards sort of league football, I think as it was. Am I right in saying it was league two originally with, with Posh? It was, wasn't it? Um, but the thing with Peterborough, I mean, don't get me wrong, you're going from uh, non-league, successful, and then you get back into the league. Big, I don't want to say a lower league club, but a club that has played predominantly championship and, and below in Peterborough. So you go in there, you want to make an impression. But you come up against the two most two charismatic chairmen of like probably all time in Barry Fry and uh, Dara McAnthony. Now, I, I love Dara. Like I've spoken to him before and... I know people have many thoughts on Dora. Um, me personally, I love him a bit. Um, interviewed him. I understand why people like him once you speak to him. But what did you like most about him, and what do you think makes him such a good chairman? Well, from from the first day, um, me and Dara, uh, we just we just clicked. You know, from the first day of me going down there, um, when I first. The thing is, when I first went down to Peterborough, I wasn't totally sure on whether or not I wanted to sign. I was loving it at Grays, and Peterborough were just a really, just an average League Two club. Yeah. So I was going from being at a really good Grays team that we've got a chance of potentially getting promoted to to the League Two, and I'm surrounded by all my friends and you know my teammates to go into Peterborough, which is an hour and a half down the road. And I don't know anyone. Like, am I going to be able to go and achieve what I want to achieve in football if I go there? But once I'd spoken to Dara, it was, it was more or less done and dusted. I'd, I'd said to him, look, I want to, I want to just go, come away, um, speak to my family, speak to my missus um, at the time. And, I'll come back and I'll give you an answer. <laughs> and they were adamant, you're not leaving. You're not leaving this building until you've signed. So if you need to go and speak to your missus, you can ring her. If you need to speak to your family, you can ring them. But you're not leaving this building until you've signed the contract. In the end, I ended up leaving. I was adamant that I was going to go and, and speak to the people that I needed to speak to. But he just made me feel at ease straight away. Um, and with 
he he told me his plans for the club and how he's in, he had a five year plan to get to the I think it was to get to the Premier League maybe, but or to get to the Championship. They had a they had a plan, and at the time it sounded so outrageous, like to think that in a couple of years they're going to get promoted to League One and then again they're going to get promoted to the Championship. It just seemed so far-fetched but he was so convincing with it at the same time so I thought you know what yeah I'm I want to be a part of this and he, he you know he sold it to me in that you're gonna you're the first of many so you're my first signing I've just taken over this club you're my first signing and you're gonna be the first one the first building block towards what we're gonna achieve and we are gonna achieve it and it was looking back, it was the right decision without a shadow. You know, it was 100% the right decision going and working with Barry Fryer, Darren McAntony, um, and being at that club, which is an amazing club. You know, for me, it's the best club I've been at for, you know, the people. You know, I've been at some great clubs, but the people at Peterborough were and still are, you know, the, the best for me. And, yeah, it was it was a decision that if I if I hadn't made it, I probably wouldn't be here today to, yeah. to be sitting here talking to you. The thing I love most about um, Dara, and I was reading this is from a fan to a chairman, I guess. I was reading obviously uh, everything I could possibly read about your time at Peterborough, and I came across when Wolves came in with a bid. And I started reading through it. And obviously, as we spoke off air about Sunderland's pursuit of Marcus Madison, oh, they've got to pay 2.5. They've got to pay 5 million. And then I look at the Ivan Tony stuff. Oh, I've got to pay 8 million. I want 10 million. Then I checked your stuff and I've seen a very similar story. Of Wolves <laughs> want him 5 million quid. But you know what? He sticks to his word. He doesn't budge on it. He's never sold a player, to my knowledge, for less than what he's said publicly he thinks they're worth, which is a pain in the arse for me because I wish would sign Marcus Madison. I've wanted that for about two years, but he always stuck to his word. I think it was 3 million or 2.5 and that was it. But um, I suppose on the flip side, Wolves are massive. You've loved your time at Peterborough. You've had a double promotion. You're working under a manager that's had a double promotion. You've just said openly you love the chairman. But I understand when Wolves come in, that concern your head. Wolves are massive and always have been pretty much. Um, but is it kind of frustrating when you have a chairman like that that says you pay this and then that's the only reason you'll go? Or do you kind of prefer that kind of black and white information that, you know, they make a bit, I'm going, but until they do, I'm going nowhere? Um, <clears throat> yeah and no. Um, at the time, as a, as a player, I'd we just got promoted from, from League Two to League One and the opportunity to, to go to Wolves, who were in the Championship, and looking to kick on and get promoted to the Premier League. Yeah. Um, so for me, it was like, it's a no-brainer. Wolves have come in for me. 18 months ago, you paid 150 grand for me. Wolves have just made, um, I think they went up to something, I think they went up to like 2.5 million. Yeah. Uh, but at the time it was like, right, Wolves have bid a million. They've bid 1.5, they've been 2 million. They've, like, they've gone up to 2.5. And they're like, no, well, we want 5 million or 3.5 million. And it was just figures that we were never going to get to. 
Like Wolves were, Wolves were never going to get to those figures. For them to even table over a two million pounds was, if to me, was ridiculous. Because I looked at myself and thought, who wants to pay two million pounds for me? Like, um, so it was frustrating. And through that whole period, it was it was tough for me because I desperately wanted to go to Wolves. Um, one of my good mates, Michael Kartley who I was at Grays with had gone to Wolves and was flying. And I'd seen, you know, I'd been to Wolves a few times before their interest to see him play and see what Molyneux was like. And it was, it was brilliant, you know. Um, so the opportunity to go and play there was one that at that point I desperately didn't want to miss out on. Yeah. But I understood what the, what the club was saying and for their plan, they needed me at Peterborough because they would, they'd been promoted, yes, but they were looking to go and get back-to-back promotions. And selling me for a million pounds or keeping me and getting a, another promotion and being in League One is definitely going to be more lucrative for the club and help the club to get to where they want to be. So I can see it now from, from the, the management side of, of things. Um, but at the time, it was tough. You know, I'd, I'm looking at this is the level that I'm playing at and this is where I could be playing. This is the, the wages that I'm earning here and this is what I could be earning. These are the players I'm playing against and these are the players I could be playing against. And the two things just seem, you know, it's, it's exactly the same now. If you get a player that's only played at the best League Two and then you get a big championship club, a a derby or, or someone like that yeah. coming from and they're offering a, a good amount, that player's going to want to go because they're going to want to go and challenge themselves at that level and all the, everything that comes with it. So from, I was no different. I was an ambitious young player that wanted to go and play at the highest level that I possibly could and do the best for me and my family. And, you know, they managed... What was good is the club didn't just say, right, you want to go, so we're not letting you go, but we're just going to push you to the side. Mm-hmm. The way they managed the situation was brilliant. Um, and my first game back, I think it was pre-season, we played Liverpool in pre-season. And my first game, I got booed for the first 15 minutes of the game because I'd handed in a transfer request. Um, I was getting booed. And then I scored. And then once I scored, they cheered and that was it. It was almost literally like, we're going to boo you until you show us that you still want to be here. Yeah. And once you do, it all's forgiven. And it was. From that moment onwards, everything just went brilliantly. And then we, we ended up having a great season and, and going and getting back-to-back promotions. Yeah, you got promoted again, which is kind of... Because I was reading, obviously, about that time. I'm thinking, hang on, they've just been promoted from League One. That wasn't the after the double promotion, and I'm thinking, well, hang on, he's not gone down, he's top scorer, he's, he's got on with it. But as a team then, and as yourself, all that's going on, but you still have a target for the season. You're still obviously within the manager's plans with Darren Ferguson. Um, double promotion, was that always in the plan? Was that like, no fear, yeah, let's just bang on and do it again. This is not about staying up, let's get the championship ASAP. Yeah, because we looked at this, we, you looked at this team that we had in the squad, and it was almost, really, we should have won... League Two, and we should have won League One. You know, League Two, I think we missed out to MK Dons. 
but we should have won it. You know, just a few inconsistencies here and there. We should have, we should have won that. And the way we were beating teams, we were going and beating teams 7-1 and 8-2 and just scoring freely. You know, yeah. throughout the team, we just had goals. Um, so then going into League One, it was no different. We, st- we still had players that were better than, better than League One level, even though a lot of us had come from, from non-league. Um, what Peterborough had been really clever with is that they'd, they'd picked the best players. That's what they'd done. They were the first real club to go and say, right, he's the best, he's the best striker in that division. He's the other best striker. He's the best number 10. He's the best centre-half. They just handpicked all these different players and merged us all together, put us in a bubble where everyone had to move to Peterborough. We all had to live within a, a... I think it's like a mile and a half radius or something like that. So there was only two, there was two brand new estates, Sugar Way or Hampton. So everyone either lived in Hampton or Sugar Way. And we all just ended up in this little bubble where we socialised outside of football together. At football, we were best of friends. Yeah. So when it came to a Saturday, to go out and work hard for your mate, wasn't a problem to go and run through brick walls for the for the man next to you 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 knew that they were going to do it for you and then for myself I had Craig McHale Smith who was exactly the same as me in the way that he would run all day every day for when it got to a game situation he would run as hard as he could for 90 minutes and I'd do exactly the same so we knew no matter who we're playing against, we've got the ability to absolutely run you into the ground. And from that, you're going to make mistakes and we're going to score goals. And then we've got the likes of George Boyd or Lee Tomlin who can just produce moments of magic. And yeah. then as you go on, you know, we had a Grant McCann who can just put a ball on the sixpence. Tom Williams, who's probably the best crosser of the ball that, that I've played with. So... You, you had those players around you, but I knew for myself, having Craig McHale Smith next to me and having George Boyd behind me, I'm going to get chances. And providing I get chances, I'm, I'm going to score goals. I think looking at Peterborough, they've, they've kept that up as well, haven't they? They do pick players. Marcus Madison's a perfect example. Picked up from Gateshead, probably the best player at that time. It, it seems like they developed that squad to the point where they can maybe sell them on for big money, but then just replicate them by signing another four. Like that ethos has never changed, has it? No. From from when Dara took over, he's always had he always wants his teams to have good strikers and score goals. And and the club are, are famous for it now. You know, you look at the strikers that have come through at Peterborough and yeah. been you look Matty Godden and Ivan Tony Moisa are the recent ones, and Marcus Madison. But you've got Jack Marriott, you've got Britta Sombolonga, you've got Dwight Gale, you've got Mikel Smith, you've got myself. It's all these players, it's not a coincidence that they all pass through Peterborough at some point and go on and score loads of goals. You know, it's, it's not a coincidence. Peterborough look for a certain type of player, a certain type of striker, and they're really good at finding them. 
and Barry, Barry Fry is probably the best in the business at managing to get a deal done, whether it's buying a player and paying over five million years or whether or not it's getting them for peanuts, you know, he's, he's the best in the business at it. And, you know, that's why he's, he is who he is. Yeah, exactly. You're absolutely right. He's, he's someone, I think, who could buy a player based on his own personality, from what I can tell. As it was, you went to, to Hull after that. Supremely successful time at, at Peterborough, but I think there was a particular game against Newcastle where you'd been dropped. That had upset you. You'd wanted to move. And I think it had probably got to a point where you felt like it was time to move on anyway. But um, the big thing I wanted to ask, now I don't know if you know the answer to this, but you went to Hull, and I'm looking through Hull's team. Got some great characters in there. You've got Vita Minone was there. Love Vito. Um, Andy Dawson just came down from the Premiership. One huge, huge character, Jimmy Bullard. Yeah. Um, now, he got released from the club about six months after you left. So I'm going to ask a straightforward question. What actually happened in that training camp in Slovenia? <laughs> I definitely can't tell you. <laughs> I definitely can't tell you what happened in Slovenia. But let's just say that him and the manager didn't get on. And the thing is, this was before I even came. Him and the manager, there'd been a breakdown in in their relationship. Is this Pearson? Nigel Pearson, yeah. Yeah. But their relationship had broken down prior to me arriving. Um, and I don't even think, at, at that point, I don't even think it was necessarily just Nigel and, and Jimmy. I think the club wanted... Jimmy to leave because he was on big money yeah. and he was, you know, he's, he was been injured for a long time. So I think the club wanted him to move on. He wasn't prepared to move on, which he wouldn't be. Um, and that co- kind of caused a, a rift between them. You know, what actually developed between them, you know, that's, that's kind of down to them and uh, I'm not going to be the one to kind of <laughs> spill the beans. You so. bastard. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, listen, no, I get for it. For me, Jimmy was, Jimmy was for a player brilliant. You know, he was an absolute dream. For a manager, a nightmare. Yeah. You know, um, and I'm I'm sure he wasn't like that with every manager, but he just because of their relationship had broke down. Jimmy was the loudest character, which he is now, the loudest personality in any room. Um, so he's not really a person that you want against you. Yeah. You know, he, he's the kind of person, if you can get him on side, then you know he's going to he's gonna do everything he can to, to make life easy for you, let's say. The first day that I went down to Hull, um, I'd gone to, before I signed, I'd just gone to watch a game. They brought me down, showed me around, and I think they might have been playing Reading. Mm-hmm. So I've gone out into, I've gone to the box, gone out into the stadium and the lads are doing the warm-up and everyone's like, you know, they're in their two, uh, two lines doing the warm-up. And then you've just got Jimmy running around, jumping on people's backs. I, it was almost something like a comedy sketch. I was like, what is, what's he doing? And everyone else was doing the warm-up properly, except Jimmy, who was running and jumping on someone's back, then running and like, a ball would come out, so he'd like smash the ball at the goalkeepers while they're trying to do their warm-up session. But he just constantly wanted to have fun and mess around. Yeah. And that was his character. But what a player. Like phenomenal on his day. Oh my God. 
you know, I never had the luxury of playing with him for, for long. But you could see he had some ability. You know, he the things he could do with, with a football, you know, you, he could see things that you couldn't even see. Even once he's made a pass, you're still thinking, I still didn't even see that. So ability-wise, he had, he had bundles. But like I say, just little examples like that, I can see why... As a as a manager, it could it could be a little bit hard work at times. I can I can't imagine anyone more opposite than Nigel Pearson, who seems like a head teacher, compared to Jimmy Bullard, who seems like the naughtiest child in the whole entire school. You know, Nigel Pearson's actually not like a head teacher. A lot of people say that to me, and if you how you see him in the press, and he comes across really stiff and strict he's so not like that he for me is one of the most approachable guys I've, I've met you know he's always he's always up for a laugh and a joke and yeah it's just weird because I suppose it's, maybe it's just my relationship with him but he's always up for a laugh and a joke and he's nowhere near as stern as he as he comes across but like when he comes across in the media he does come across real strict and stiff and yeah but his personality it's probably hard for him to to live down that ostrich comment i mean he was linked to sunland before he went out to watford and i would have i would have taken him in a heartbeat no problem um i think as a manager his record speaks for itself but i think it's difficult for pearson to lose that the ostrich comments just stuck with him and i think a lot of people look at that and there's probably a few examples where he's probably quite chilled relaxed (laughs) And his results, I mean, should have never been sacked at Watford. I want to go on record. Like, that was crazy, that decision. Um, but there's a reason he keeps getting premiership jobs. And it's because, obviously, he's got something in his locker, isn't it? Yeah, for me, he's a, he's a brilliant manager. You know, he, he signed me at Hull and I loved playing for him. You know, I'd, I'd go and play for him tomorrow and run for a brick wall for him. You know, how he, how he treated me in my time and the way he helped me settle was, was brilliant. You know, so... For me, I just think I hope that he goes and gets another job very quickly because, like you say, the the sacking from Watford for me is it's outrageous. You I know what he's it. done there. Um, he went there and they was in the relegation. He's and they've sacked him when he's got him out of it. Um, it's yeah, you know, some football never ceases to amaze me, and good people don't always get what they deserve, and and that is definitely a, a case there. Hundred um, percent. In terms of your career, there's a couple of questions I've got to ask. One of them is, I'll openly admit, a very selfish question that I have to ask because I'm a Sunderland fan. But you moved to eventually League One uh, with Bradford City, who were having a great time under Philip Parkinson. Uh, he did really, really well, did Parky. But Parky is the manager of Sunderland at the moment, a club that unfortunately I'm madly in love with. And I must admit. I would say, and can't be clear for one, but I think he's not particularly loved at Sunderland, or it certainly hasn't been a majority loving. But for someone who worked under him during a successful time, what are the pros and cons of Parky? Um, see, this is a tough one for me because my relationship with Phil Parkinson isn't a good one. Um, so... Let's just say that when I went to Bradford, I was kind of told that we'd be playing a certain way and the certain things would be done. For me, I don't feel like 
that happened. Um, mm-hmm. And I didn't have the greatest experience at, at Bradford. I, I didn't settle great. Um, the way that the team played was so different to how I'd been used to playing. Um, you know, we, at Bradford, we played just very, get the ball at the back, get it to the fullback, smash it forward to James Hansen, play and get bits and kind of gamble off of, off of Hansen. I'd never played like that. I'd, I'd always played in teams where we want to get the ball down and play, play through the thirds or play into channels. And it was, you know, I, I really struggled to kind of deal with playing that way. Um, and then the relationship with Phil Parkinson, for me, broke down purely because, I, you know, I, I probably shouldn't say, I probably shouldn't really say because it's something I've never really spoken about. I've never really spoken to anyone about my relationship with Phil Parkinson, but let's just say that one minute I was playing and then the next minute I get a, I think it was it was Halloween and I get a phone call from the player liaison at, at Bradford to say, the manager wants to meet you at the hotel. No problem. And then he's saying to me that he wants me to move on. Um, now, I'm, I was shocked that, first of all, he wanted me to move on. I still had like 18 months left on my contract. Um, but I was like, okay, fine. Well, I'll go to, I'll speak to my agent and I'll go somewhere where I will, you know, I think suits me. Um, then the next day it was, he spoke to my agent, I don't want him to come into training. So I'm like, well, why, why would I not be allowed to come into training? I'll, if he wants me to move on, fine, I'll move on. But until I get something sorted, I'll, I'm going to come in and train as normal. I'm not, I've never been a person that's disruptive in a dressing room, ever. At any club I've ever been at, I've never been disruptive. If anything, I'm the total opposite. But I, I had a picture painted of me almost as if I was a bad influence and was trying to disrupt the dressing room and this and that. And that's something I can't respect. In the end, eight weeks I spent at home, I wasn't allowed to come into the club. Eight weeks I was having to just train on my own and I wasn't allowed to come into, into the club. So that for me is unforgivable. I can't physically find it in me to forgive that because it almost was trying to ruin my career. You know, I'm at the time I'm at Bradford, I'd signed a three year, three and a half year deal. I'm 18 months into it. And now you're stopping me from progressing and improving every single day. You know, you're stopping me from going and doing what I love doing. So that for me was my relationship with Phil Parkinson from that moment was, was done. Um, and in the end, after I'd gone through the, the right channels and gone to the PFA, et cetera, et cetera, the club it ended up agreeing eight weeks later to let me go back to Peterborough. Um, and then I went back on loan at, at Peterborough and, you know, it, at the end of the season, ended up leaving Bradford. But yeah, to, to answer your question, my, my, what my thoughts are on Phil Parkinson will be totally different to, to what anyone else's are. Yeah, of of, of, of for personal reasons absolutely but there'll be Sunderland fans listening to this hearing Aaron McLean as Aidan McGeady and going oh shit because similar situation um, so it's an it interesting was, thought it was funny because I know and I know Aidan 
Um, and when I saw kind of what was happening, it was almost like, I don't know, I, I can't really speak on their situation because I don't know the ins and outs. Yeah, sure. So I would just be, you know, I'm, I'm not going to just guess and say, oh, he might have done that, he might have done that. But I know from, for myself, in my situation, I had done nothing wrong whatsoever. And I was stopped from coming in training at all, from being at the training ground, from I wasn't even allowed to train with the kids because he wanted me to stay away from Ollie McBurney, who's one of my closest friends. He, you know, said that I was a bad influence on Ollie. I love um, Ollie McBurney. Love him. Unbelievable. Unbelievable lad. Unbe and he's a per he's someone who I took a shine to him as soon as I went to Bradford. I took a shine to him. I loved his personality. I thought he had a great he had great ability and had a real chance of of being a success, you know, and, and having a good career. And he's someone that I've been able to mentor from that moment onwards to this point. You know, I speak to him all the time. And the fact that Phil Parkinson thought that I was there trying to hinder his progress, when in fact it was the total opposite. I was there trying to help him to, to be the player that he can be. And by you stopping that, and trying to use that against me to to tarnish my my reputation and tarnish my character, I, I, I can't respect that, and I never will. Interesting. As a Sunderland fan, as my you can see, my eyes are just doing that the whole way through. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you I don't know how you managed to get that out of me because I've never spoken about that. And but you ain't what me, you say. Like, I think everyone will have their own experience and you can only give yours. It's not you saying he's a bad man, a bad manager, just in your experience. It wasn't good. It's not to say you're not slandering him, it's your experience. And I think you can only give your own experience, can't you? I'm sure there's people who might listen to that and say, oh, he was the best manager I've ever played under, loved him. But there'll be some people who identify with your experience and that's, that's the way the world works, isn't it? 100%. And players have come to me and said to me, you know, whether they were going to go and sign for Bradford or whether go and sign for, for Phil Parkinson. Players have come and asked me and said, you know, what's it like? Should I go there? And, should I? and I've always said, listen, go there. I'm, I'm not going to tell you my story because mine is a purely isolated situation. Whether or not that situation has happened with other players or whatever, everyone's situation is always going to be different. So I would never stop someone going and, progressing and having a good career and possibly achieving something because of the experience that I've had. Like that yeah. would just be selfish. So it, you know, in, in that world, I don't have, I'm never going to say a bad word. I'm never going to stop a player or try and influence a player to not go and play for, for Phil Parkinson because of how I feel he treated me. Yeah. But myself and my personal relationship with him is, what it is and to this day we've never actually we've not bumped into each other it was at Bolton I thought we might end up bumping into each other then obviously it was at Sunderland but our paths never see, never seemed to cross and I'm sure they will one day but like I say I can't respect someone that doesn't show me respect and what happened to me was one of the most disrespectful things that I've encountered in my life so I don't envisage it being a, a great reunion all I would ask is if you get like Cristiano Ronaldo or Marcus Madison perhaps Lionel Messi <laughs> if they say Aaron should I go to Sunderland under party just say yes 
Don't tell them anything <laughs> bad about him. Just say yes. Yeah. So yeah, great move. That would be such a good manager. Loved him. Most respectful guy in the planet. And I'd be, I'll, I'll check you a fiver in the post or something like that. Okay, a fiver, no worries. No worries. <laughs> Something's better than nothing, isn't it? I suppose, you know, you've just left coaching, gone into media, obviously really enjoying it, obviously really at ease with it and good at it. So final question, what, what's the future holding for you or what do you hope it holds? Uh, well, I, I still love coaching. You know, I've I've only just left Peterborough and coaching on a day-to-day basis, I absolutely love. Um, so I'm not by any stretch of the imagination walking away from coaching. You know, I still want to do that. The media stuff is something that I'm really enjoying. You know, I've, I've met some really good people and I've the opportunities that I've had up to now have been brilliant. I've loved it and it's something that I would want to continue to do. So I'm just kind of keeping my options open. You know, I would not, if the right opportunity came up to get back into coaching, I would, you know, I'd definitely be open to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, the if I can get more opportunities to to be, to work with Sky and, and to do more media stuff, I want to do that as well. You know, I don't see why you can't compile the two together um, mm-hmm. and make sure that they both work. Um, and just see what happens. You know, there's, it's, it's such an uncertain time at the moment. Um, job opportunities aren't, you know, they're, they're, not, they're just not there at the moment. And I know, you know, leaving Peterborough, I knew I was going to have to bide my time and wait for the right opportunity to come up, which I'm, I'm doing now. And I'm confident that something will come up. You know, I feel like I've done a, a good enough job at, at, in my time at Peterborough to, to warrant giving being given an opportunity and I just want to go you know when it does come up I'll go and I'll make the best the best of it but until then you know I'll just continue to to keep learning keep watching games the media stuff is is brilliant for me because I'm able to still analyze and and dissect things within football and within the game and and I'll just see where where the future leads you know it's there's there's no there's no set direction for me at the moment. I'll just continue to to do what I can to, to improve and, and see what happens. Perfect. Aaron, great chat, great laugh. Thanks very Brilliant. much for your time. Appreciate it. No problem. Been a pleasure.